Our second reading this morning follows on from the one that Brenda brought to us earlier. So we're picking up in 2 Samuel 7 and the second half of verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. This is one of those particularly significant passages in the Bible, uh, which doesn't stand out perhaps to us because we're a little familiar perhaps, uh, or we know the end. And so when you know the end, it's not quite such a big surprise. But let's pray uh, that God might speak to us now as we reflect on it. Uh, Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it we can see from beginning to end that you have a plan for your creation and that you choose to work through people uh, to fulfil your plans, not just in this world, but for eternity. And so, Lord, I pray that we might see that clearly today. Amen. When it comes to having a plan and knowing where you are going, are you more like a jellyfish, you know, where you just sort of like to go with the flow, or perhaps a little more structured, a bit more like a compass? You don't need to know all the detail, but you need to know some direction. And once, that, once you've got that, you're feeling okay about life. Or are you more a rocket launch kind of person? where you need to know every detail and every detail counts because if you don't get it right, then people die. And that's just going to the groceries. (laughs) And of course, some of those instincts do depend on our context. So, for example, uh, if you are dating someone, and some people might need to look back a little bit further, if you're dating someone and you're not quite sure where this is all going, then you might just be a little happier to go with the flow and see what happens. If, on the other hand, uh, you would love to get married, then you're going to be a lot less go with the flow and at the very least compass. Or, you know, if you're a rocket launch kind of person, you've been planning this out since, you know, way before you even met this person and they just don't know it yet. 
So most of us do like to know where we're going and that's part of what makes this passage so significant because for the first time uh, God is laying out very clearly not just that he has a plan for his creation but just how big that plan is. Uh, that it's not just for a nation, but it's for all people across all of history, for all of eternity. Uh, but God is going to fulfill that plan through this people of Israel, which is kind of astounding because Israel are just an astoundingly insignificant country. In the scheme of world orders and world powers, Israel is incredibly small. And yet God is going to choose to work through this tiny nation to fulfill his plans. And I think it's helpful for us because as we look at this, you know, perhaps it's not the way we would think that God is going to save all people. But if we can see that God has been faithful to his promises in the past, then we can also be confident that he'll be faithful to his promises in the future. But I think for some of us, particularly if you're a rocket launch kind of person, there's also a little bit of frustration because God's plans are not always as clear as we would like them to be. And as we will see, he won't always fulfill his plans in the way that we expect or even they anticipated. So our account begins in this utopian moment in Israel's history, where David is sitting on the throne. He has rest from his enemies. And so there is a sense of safety and security and prosperity for Israel. God has been faithful to his promises. But David's still uneasy. He says, here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. You know, like it or not, the appearance shapes our perception of reality. Uh, so we dress up if we're going to a wedding or a, or a funeral as a sign of honour or respect for the person uh, we are, are going to see. You know, if you look around a city, you get a sense of what the city values by the way it presents itself. You know, so some cities want to say that they're all about business and prosperity and success. Others want to highlight their alleyways and sense of artistic, adventurous whimsy. Uh, some want to highlight their beauty and others want to highlight their power. And David recognises that right now, Jerusalem, if you're just looking at it, seems to say that it's all about the king, he's in the middle of everything, and their God who they worship is kind of sitting at number two. He's in a palace. God is in a tent. And so David has this brilliant idea to build a house worthy of his glory. And there's a prophet, Nathan, and he replies to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But very quickly, God overturns that advice. So verse five, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? And with that question is the implied answer, no, that this is not David's place. And I think there's sort of a small cautionary tale in this tiny little episode, because even though it's not the main idea of the passage, it, a good idea does not necessarily make something a God idea. And so even our best ideas you know, need to be thought through with humility 
and with prayer. You know, not only do we think it's a good idea, but what does God actually want? Uh, and simply because someone is in a position to teach what God's want, you know, what God wants, uh, we shouldn't simply take that to be fact. And so that's true for me or anyone else who stands up here and opens up the Bible and says, this is what it is teaching us today. Uh, we need to follow along with our Bibles open, looking at, well, is that actually true? Is that what this passage says? And is that what it says, not just in the context of this passage, but in the context of the whole Bible? And so we need to weigh it up. Uh, in this situation, it may look like David has a brilliant idea to build God a house. But God has completely different ideas. In fact, from his perspective, from God's perspective, everything for now is as it should be. Wherever have I moved... So, wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers who I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So, it's a pretty gentle rebuke, isn't it? You know, David has an idea and God wants to say, appreciate the sentiment, but it's the wrong idea. But he very quickly moves on to something far more significant. David wants to build a temporal house, uh, God wants to build an eternal kingdom. And so this is the, the big promise, uh, perhaps of the entire Old Testament. Now, I will make your name great, like the names of the great men on earth, and I'll provide a, a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will, no will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And then a few verses later, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So God has made a promise in the past back uh, to Abraham of land and blessing. But this is the first time that that promise is going to involve a king and a kingdom that will last forever. And that's what makes this passage such a big deal. You know, in this moment, the Lord has given David and Israel rest. But there is a promise that there is an eternal rest to come. Uh, something infinitely greater than what they are experiencing now. Uh, God promises that he will secure a rest permanently. Uh, but the road from where David is now to where God will take all of humanity is not going to be a smooth road at all. You know, so in the immediate future, God will give David a son and he will build a house for God. And we know that that son is Solomon. Uh, Solomon will be most famous for asking God for wisdom. Uh, but when you actually look at his life, he makes some phenomenally unwise choices, particularly when it comes to uh, marriage and women. And, in the, and like everyone else, he's a sinner. And God punishes him for his sin. And that will be true for Solomon. That will be true for every king that is in the line of David. Uh, that they will be punished, verse 14, with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. You know, so often when uh, bad things happen, 
our first reaction is to ask the question, why me? Uh, and we ask it from the perspective of victim. You know, what have I done wrong? And sometimes there is no answer to that. Sometimes just bad things happen because we live in a broken world. Uh, and so an example of that might be chronic illness. It's not the result of any particular sin or anything we've done particularly wrong. It's just simply that life hurts and life is broken. But sometimes we do sin. And sometimes, or often we sin, and when we do, we often bear the consequences of that sin. And so when we ask, why me? Uh, we shouldn't ask from a victim perspective, uh, what have I done wrong to deserve this? We should, or sorry, when we ask from that perspective, we ask the question, what have I done wrong from that perspective of, actually, I'm the culprit. I'm the one who has contributed to this situation. And then we should see that actually God is going to use this as a moment of discipline. Uh, that in this moment, as painful as it is, as much as we hate it, what does God want to teach us in this moment? What do, rather than blaming everyone else and blaming God, uh, we need to ask the question, you know, what do I need to hear? What do I need to learn? What do I need to do? Uh, or what do I need to stop doing? Uh, in the words of Hebrews, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so as difficult as it is, uh, discipline can be good for us. And God will discipline his kings, uh, partly to teach them about how to honour him. So in the immediate future for Israel under Solomon, uh, things are going to get a bit bumpy. But then after Solomon, things get a whole lot worse. Uh, so if this is Israel under Solomon, then for the kings after, it looks more like this. <laughs> so by the end of Solomon's reign, uh, Israel go have a civil war. The entire kingdom is split in two. The northern kingdom is then invaded by the Assyrian Empire. And then a hundred years later or so, the southern kingdom is invaded by the Babylonians. Uh, and after the Babylonians, there's the Persians. After the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans. And in fact, Israel never become a nation again until 1947, you know, which is you know, post-World War II and very recent history. And so all the way through history, Israel have been asking the question, is God going to be faithful to his promise? Uh, certainly that's the question of Psalm 89, where it says, You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. And then a few verses later, How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? But despite all of these sort of feelings of abandonment and all the conflict and suffering, the Old Testament prophets also spoke of hope and of restoration. And so this is what the prophet Jeremiah says. And Jeremiah isn't really known for his optimism. He says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. 
And so for those who trust God and trust in God's promises and trust God's prophets, they are looking for a time when God will send his anointed one, uh, what in Hebrew is called the Messiah. And in the New Testament, in the Greek, is translated Christ. But of course, when God does finally fulfill his promise, it's completely different to what everyone expected. Now, firstly, this kingdom will come in the line of David in earthly terms, but will embody God himself. So the book of John opens with these words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And a few verses later, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So while David was called the son of God relationally, uh, Jesus is literally uh, the eternal son of God. Uh, Secondly, instead of wearing a crown, he will wear a crown of thorns. And instead of using his position and power to restore a national Israel, he will use his position and power to serve people and die on a cross and pay the price for our sin so that we can have life. In the Old Testament, it seems like Israel are constantly looking for land. But God's plan and God's intention was always about people. And so God comes to restore people and relationships. And so when Jesus dies on the cross once and for all, he does it for not just Israel, national Israel, but for all people in all time. And so when we think about the kingdom of God in the present, uh, we're not thinking so much about land as our connectedness together in Christ. But Jesus does also point to an eternal kingdom uh, where people and place will come together. So Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Uh, And then in Revelation, the book of Revelation, John sees a vision of how things will all come together in the end. And he says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. So Israel had hope for a land and rest, and they were looking for a Messiah who was going to restore the glory days, you know, the good old days of David. Uh, But God's plan is always infinitely bigger. Uh, It was always about eternal king and an eternal kingdom. And so whether we die or whether Jesus comes again, uh, that is the future that we look forward to, uh, that God will bring everything together perfectly and permanently. His people with his king in his kingdom. And we can be confident of that outcome because we've seen what God has done in the past that God has been faithful through all of this messy history to his promises, and so he'll continue to be faithful in the present. You know, so often you know, we want God to be clearer with his plans. You know, Lord, where, where, do you want, where are you going? Where do you want me to go? Where do I fit in all of this? Uh, and we might not have all the detail. Uh, and for the rocket launch people, that, that just drives you bonkers. Uh, but we do have the really important stuff. Uh, We know that we are created in the image of God. Uh, We know that God loves us. We know that we are saved from our sin because of what Jesus did on the cross, that if we repent and believe, we will be forgiven. 
We know how to live in the present because we have God's word. And we know the future. We know that we have a promise of eternal life with him. And so for all of the messiness, we can be confident of where we stand. And so let let me finish with these words from the words of Paul. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Amen.